Ezekiel chapter 9. We return tonight to Ezekiel's vision of the temple. To remind ourselves of what's taking place, we saw in chapter 8 that Yahweh led Ezekiel through a prophetic vision of what was taking place at the temple in Jerusalem. This temple was the chosen means of worship for Yahweh, but the temple now housed idols and all kinds of abominable and evil practices. We saw various scenes of offensive acts of worship culminating in greater and greater offense. We first saw an image erected in the courtyard. Then we saw the elders of Israel giving themselves to covert idolatry within the temple facilities. And then the offense grew as the women and men of Israel gave themselves to overt idolatry before the temple in its courtyard. In response to this idolatry at the temple, the Lord responds in chapter 8 verse 18. Therefore I will act in my wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Our chapter tonight is a continuation of Yahweh's response against the abominations within the temple. And so let's read chapter 9 as this continuation of chapter 8 and pray. And after we get done reading, we'll pray that God's blessing would be upon us. So Ezekiel chapter 9. Then he, Yahweh, cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold on the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him, meaning the man within the linen, the writing case, who would bear the mark, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they, the angels, began with the elders who were before the house. Then he, Yahweh, said to them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain, and go out. So they went out and struck in the city. And while they were striking, I was left alone. I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, oh, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel and the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen and the writing case at his waist brought back word saying, I have done as you commanded. Let's pray. Father, as we come before this scene, a scene of your justice displayed against sin and idolatry, Lord, we thank you that we are able to be confronted with such imagery. Lord, as we come before this sentencing of Yahweh before his people, against his people, Lord, help us to see that your righteousness, that your justice is perfect. 
that in all things, even in the great judgment that we see poured out here, Lord, that you are ultimately good to your people, that you are displaying your glory as you see fit, and that the display of your justice against sin and against sinners, Lord, that is our hope. Lord, we ask that you would please uh, look upon us with favor. And as we expound these things tonight, that you would be pleased in the hearing and preaching of God's word. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. As I said, this is a continuation of Yahweh's response to the vision of idolatry at the temple. Though chapter 9 is still a part of, uh, we we should still see that this is part of the temple vision, this, this chapter also takes on somewhat of a legal quality. This brief narrative in the vision acts as the sentencing of Yahweh's justice against idolatry that was taking place at the temple. In chapter 8, we saw the damning evidence of Israel's idolatry. But in chapter 9, we will see the damning verdict of God and his justice. And this theme of justice is what I want us to look at tonight. This theme of justice. I have three points that elucidate the justice that we see displayed here in the passage. First, I want us to see that God's justice is regal, verses 1 to 3. Second, I want us to see that God's justice is rewarding, verses 3 and 4. And that God's justice is retributive, verses 5 to 11. So then, God's justice is regal, God's justice is rewarding, and God's justice is retributive. So for for our first point this evening, I want us to see that God's justice is regal. As the covenant Lord of Israel, God is the one true God, and our passage is thrusting that reality before us. After seeing the great idolatry and abomination that has taken place in his temple, God continues his response and his indictment in verse 1. Then he, Yahweh, cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. To refresh our memories from last time, at the beginning of chapter 8, we noted the irony of Ezekiel looking at the northern outer gate where he saw that provocative idol erected uh, by the people. This is chapter 8, verses 3 and 5. That image of jealousy that provokes to jealousy. It was believed, as we saw, that this image could protect Israel from their enemies, which typically came from historically from the north. But we saw that it was Yahweh himself that came from the north with Ezekiel. King Yahweh, in this instance, was acting as the new enemy of Israel. And his first act of business was to render justice against his enemies within the city gates, within the temple gates. So then the first two chapters of chapter 9 pick up the same idea of Yahweh coming to defeat Israel. And like other battles in the ancient Near East, Yahweh comes into the city and he brings his entourage to carry out the destruction of the city. Yahweh calls six executioners, or more specifically officers, equipped with weapons of war to bring about the death and destruction of the idolaters that we saw in chapter 8. Most likely, these men in chapter 9 are angelic beings because this is still a vision that we are reading. And angels are also known to take on the appearance of ordinary men, such as what we see in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
These men were to carry out warfare on behalf of King Yahweh, as David's mighty men did on his behalf. Also, with these six men, uh, six men are a man clothed in linen, linen and a writing tablet. This material linen was associated with the priestly garb, and priests were those trained in reading and writing. And often they carried writing tablets and utensils, such as the one described here. In most of the Israelite dynasty, an official head scribe was set up by uh, an official head scribe was set up by the king to aid in the administration of the kingdom and its laws and its decrees. So it is with this angelic being, he administers and carries out the legal task of Yahweh Himself. We read that these seven that these seven angelic officers come before the bronze altar, which was typically right in front of the temple, inside the inner court. They come right to the very center of the heart of Israel. What we are to see is that these angelic beings are standing at attention, awaiting word from King Yahweh. The focus comes now upon King Yahweh and what he was going to decree in light of the abominations that we saw in chapter 8. So then in verse 3, Yahweh is presented to us in his regalia. Verse 3, now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. Again, to refresh our memory, the glory of God is described in chapter 1. We saw that the appearance of the glory of God was depicted by a dazzling figure of a man on fire who was seated upon a chariot that was carried, carried by the cherubim. What is meant by glory here in this text is the human figure that we saw the, 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 the image of a man that had been seated atop of the throne, atop the chariot, rather. So this figure stepped off the chariot and went into the threshing of the house, meaning the temple. And it's from the temple that Yahweh, that we are to understand that Yahweh comes to his throne. So then Yahweh, he comes, he, he has this chariot he's, that is attended by the cherub, cherubim. Now that he is back at his throne, he gets off the, chari uh, the chariot. And he proceeds into the temple to take his seat. And it's from the, this temple, that is Yahweh's throne, that Yahweh will execute his justice, which we will see in a moment. What we're to understand from this scene, brothers, is that Yahweh has returned from Babylon, where he was first introduced in Ezekiel. And he has now come to the temple in Jerusalem to formally wage war against his people as he had promised as their covenant Lord. And as we've seen in our study throughout Ezekiel. As the covenant Lord, Yahweh placed stipulations on the people. If they committed idolatry, he would come against them in judgment. At this point in their rebellion against him, Yahweh was no longer fighting for Israel. Rather, now he was fighting against them. So then, with all this refresh in my, our minds, brothers, we should note this. Yahweh is king. Yahweh is king, no matter whether his subjects obey him or not. And this is profoundly important as we think about the concept of justice. Theologically speaking, there are two ways to think about God's justice in this passage. First, just, justice should be understood covenantally. Or, or legally. In the Torah, God covenanted with the nation of Israel. God as the superior 
presented Israel with terms and conditions, and Israel confirmed and accepted those conditions. God would be their covenant Lord. That is, he would be their king, and Israel would be his people. In God's covenant with Israel, God established that he would richly bless the nation of Israel for obedience, but that he would curse the nation for their disobedience, especially the sin of idolatry, especially the sin of idolatry. So God's justice against Israel's idolatry can be understood as him fulfilling his promises as covenant king or covenant lord. He's within his rights according to the agreement, according to the law. And we'll pick up more on this idea of justice according to the covenant in in just a moment. But there's another way for us to think about God's justice. God's justice is God himself. Justice or righteousness, biblically speaking, is an attribute ascribed to God himself. God doesn't have justice or possess justice. He is justice. But what in the world does this mean? What in the world does this mean? What does it mean that God is just, that he is justice, or that he is righteousness? The idea of biblically speaking and just plainly speaking, logically speaking... The idea of justice entails a moral standard or a moral law that dictates what is morally righteous or unrighteous, what is just or unjust. To be clear, there is nothing outside God that God is held accountable to. Theologically speaking, God is is just morally, he is just or morally righteous because he is the lawgiver. He is therefore the standard of righteousness. Simply put, he is righteousness, he is justice, since his own being, who he is, dictates what is goodness. We could say that righteousness is merely the goodness of God viewed from the angle of the courtroom or seen from a forensic lens or angle. So then, brothers, what does this have to do with God being king? Well, if God is goodness and the arbiter of morality. He possesses alone the sole authority and the right to dictate what is good and what is not, what is just and what is unjust. Brothers, this is profoundly important to see. God's justice is regal because God is inherently king. By virtue of his own divine being and him being the creator, we as creatures are accountable before our God as king, as Lord. Now this may seem like a no-brainer, brothers, and it should be. It should be a no-brainer. Of course, creatures are held accountable to God. And we are held accountable to his moral standard that is himself. But I have noticed something within the air of conservative Christianity as of late. For whatever reason, I found that so many so-called Christians are excited to affirm that there is a moral right and wrong. That there is a standard of justice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But they can easily affirm that this moral standard comes, and we should understand that they can easily affirm that this moral standard comes by God's hand and his will. They understand this. That it is God who is the moral standard. He is the lawgiver. He dictates what is good and what is right. But it dumbfounds me when those who affirm such weighty truths can so easily shrug off that same accountability 
on their own lives. Here's what I mean. All Christians must and should affirm that God is the standard of morality and justice. But not all who profess actually believe and practice this. They believe there is a standard for you, but not for me. At least to some extent. For example, in our day, especially in our growing tribalism as a nation, it is easy to say that such and such a group is morally evil, unjust, or unrighteous because they blatantly disobey God. They blatantly do so. But brothers, it's so easy to justify that since that crew over there is so bad, my foibles or my crew, my injustice, isn't all that bad or unjust. Brothers, this is ludicrous, sinful thinking. Yes, there are some things that we should understand from the law. Some things are morally weightier than others, as we saw in Matthew 23, 23. But such truth that there are more weightier things to law does not nullify that the fact that Christians are to love justice in the entirety of justice, despite how unjust their enemies may be. Micah 6, 8. Just because someone else sins, this does not mean that we aren't held accountable for our own sins. No matter how benign in comparison to the greater evil or injustice that we see from our friends to the left or to the right. Brothers, we are accountable to King Jesus. He has called us. He has called us to his standard of righteousness, not righteousness in comparison to others. And brothers, I'll just pause here. Implicitly in our comparison of our righteousness to others, we are making them God and not the one true God. When we place the basis, when we make them the the standard bearer, as long as I'm better than them, we ultimately make them God. Because they are now the arbiter of what is moral and what is right. And that is blasphemy. Brothers, in Luke 11, Jesus confronts the Pharisees for comparing their justice according to their fellow men. But King Jesus indicts them for their folly. Woe to you Pharisees. This is a covenant indictment. Woe to you Pharisees. For you tithe mint and rue and every herb, but neglect justice and the love of God. These you have ought to have done without neglecting the others. I think King Jesus' rebuke can stand for many within the church today. Jesus said to do all the law, to fulfill all the law, to measure up to his standard, not just to be bigger, or more, uh, not, not just the bigger, more important parts of the law that we so arbitrarily choose. He said to love the law. He said to follow the law. He said to respond in obedience to the lawgiver. But so often, in our own skewed version and thinking of things, we like to cherry pick what is the really important thing. And yes, this is by no means denying that there are weightier things of the law. But notice what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, you need to do all X, Y, and Z. You need to love justice and uh, uh, you need to practice justice and love God. Yes, 
But he also says this, to continue to tithe your mint and cumin. Luke 11, verse 42. Jesus wants us to do the full law. So then, how does this apply to us? By us looking at Jesus' example here as it regards justice, or as it regards his moral standard. The Pharisees, they like to compare themselves because they did all these all the minor things that they thought were big. For Christians nowadays, they love to think of themselves in this way, that we do the big things. We, you know, we, we love God, we love justice, we do justice. But those little ancillary things that we so often just kick underneath the, the rug, that we don't find to be important, that we arbitrarily choose to just kind of, you know, wince at. Like, yeah, that, that's something that Christians do. But, you know, it's not the big thing. No, Jesus said, do the full law. Do the whole law. Yes, this, this is mincing words here, brothers. Yes, it is getting into the details. But that is what we are to be about. We are to be, when it comes to justice, when it comes to God's moral law, we should be about the details. We should be those who give ourselves to the law fully and completely. And if that means tithing our mint and cumin, let us tithe our mint and cumin. Brothers, in our days, day and age, you might not be a racist or a xenophobe or anything like that. Good for you. But have you obeyed Jesus to show hospitality to those who are different from you? Sure, you might not murder someone or hold resentment in your heart. You, you learn to let go and let God, right? But have you given yourself to your enemy fully and completely? and sacrificial love as King Jesus has showed us in his law. Brothers, you may have done the way you're part of the law, and that's good. I don't want to undermine that, but what is true justice? Is not looking to the guy to your left or to the right in the pew, or to that church or that church down the street, but it's looking to the true law found within the word of God. Let us love justice. Let us love righteousness. And let us follow our God in humility, following his example, his rule, his righteousness. Not just a weak-willed, whitewashed comparison of it. Brothers, do not neglect the other. Now then, coming back to the text. After seeing God in his regalia, having God presented to us in the fullness of his majesty and his justice and righteousness... God has been seated on his throne in Jerusalem after hearing the evidence that we saw in chapter 8. The, 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 the covert and overt worship taking place within many idols. This scene that we see in chapter, uh, verses 3 and 4 is similar to a judge taking his seat in a court. And his officers, the angels, are standing at attention waiting, awaiting his verdict. In verse 3b we read this. And he, Yahweh, called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So in his first speech, God tells his scribe to mark a particular people. This mark would act as a sign that these people would be spared from God's wrath. 
As we will see in a moment, the executioners were going to go throughout the city. But if they saw this mark on a person, they were not allowed to touch them. They were not allowed to execute them. Next week for our Lord's Supper service, I'll expand more upon this scene in further detail. Because this is a rich salvation imagery presented in the text. And it will serve us well to contemplate before we take the Lord's Supper. So if you would, I I apologize, but I want to keep that aspect for next week. Because it is just so rich and perfect for our time before communion. But for the time being, I want us to consider another avenue of looking at this scene. So remember, this is a judicial scene. God is executing his justice in this passage. And so, though it is natural and easy to see this passage as a great account of God's grace and mercy, as so many have seen, we should still understand it as a display of justice. So then often, in Christian circles, we often associate God's justice with God's wrath, which is appropriate. God's wrath is the manifestation of his justice against sin and against sinners. Now, with that said, more often than not in the Bible, God's justice, the manifestation of his righteousness, is actually considered a rewarding justice, not a punitive justice. As Herman Bobbink notes, and yes, I put that name to build up my sermon. There it is. As Herman Bobbink notes, rather than justice being a synonym for wrath against sin, the terminology of justice and righteousness is often associated with God vindicating the cause of the righteous the cause of righteous people, in raising them to a position of honor and well-being. And I believe this conception fits the scenario that we see in verse 4 of chapter 9. The text says that Yahweh gave this mark of salvation for those who sigh and moan over the abominations. We aren't given any more description of these men other than this, that they sigh and moan over the abominations within their midst. Despite this limited description, it is sufficient to understand how God's justice is sufficient to understand how God's justice is a rewarding justice. We are to understand that these men who mourn this idolatry in their midst are being rewarded by God for their fidelity and obedience. As we mentioned earlier in our study, the idea of individual responsibility comes in further clarity in the book of Ezekiel. By these men remaining faithful, they are rewarded by God for their obedience, despite the larger body of Israel becoming corrupted in their sin. These men kept the covenant. These men were found faithful to the covenant Lord. And because of their fidelity and obedience, they would be rewarded with relief from that idolatry. By God judging the idolaters, these faithful men of God would find relief from beholding the grotesque sin of idolatry. So then God's justice rewards obedience and fidelity. And it's often by punishing the evildoer in the midst of his faithful ones. Now I believe this brief point should teach us how to think and speak about accepted forms of evil in our day. In our culture of the deep south, it is considered impolite to point out another's flaws or moral failings. Uh, We saw a little bit of this this morning from our brother Ben. And typically, I would agree with this. I believe it is uh, illegitimate uh, just to point out one's flaws unnecessarily. But in our pursuit of levity, in our cordiality, 
We often, lumped, we often lump ourselves together, brothers, with sinners in such a way that is false and provides a false relief to those who need to feel the sting of rebuke. Not only for the spiritually good, not only for their spiritual good, but also for ours as well. On Friday, I went to a haircut, as you can tell. Thank you for the compliments and the critiques. And I stroked stroked up a conversation with my barber about spiritual things. It's easy to do now because they always ask, so what do you do for a living? And I say, well, I don't make a living off of it, but I I like to preach. Um, I'm kidding. Um, Thank you for everything that y'all provide for me. (laughs) Um, But uh, with all joking aside, I was able to strike up this conversation because it allows me to do it kind of more naturally. And that's a trick. Try uh, in your just spiritual encounters with uh, unbelievers or just in those little moments, try to get to the church some way. Get, get to some kind of spiritual conversation. It's very naturally and easily done. If they ask you about um, your, you know, your work, say, yeah, you know, I do this, but you know, my main work that keeps me busy is that I'm a deacon at the church or you know, I'm involved in this ministry. It's a great way to get people talking. Um, just that commercial aside. Um, as we were talking, I, I found out that my barber was a Christian. But as we talked about the state of the world and such, he was constantly saying, you know, I'm a sinner too and we all got our problems, right? We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be critical, you know? We shouldn't be so critical of one another. And we all just need to give each other grace in our disagreements. Now, I certainly agreed with him in what he said. I was happy to see that this, this Christian man, this southerly uh, gentleman that was before me, that he wasn't a, a, a hypocrite or anything like that. That he wasn't boastful. But there was this incessant need on his part to excuse himself because he did not want to come off rude or judgmental against sinners. I found this perplexing. Again, I'm appreciative of this fact that he, he's not wanting to come off as judgmental or mean or, or just, you know, over overcouth in, in certain matters. But... When he, was doing, when he was doing this, you know, kind of back and forth with me, something just seemed off. Eventually, I asked him whether he believed in hell and that people went there. And, he's, and he said that he did, but he was saddened by that fact. He was saddened by the fact that people go to hell. That God sentenced sinners in justice to hell. Again, I, I understood what he was trying to say. That it's a sad thing that uh, sinners fall into judgment. It is sad. But I couldn't help myself. I kept probing. Though the fate of my haircut was in his hands, I probed just a bit more and I asked, Well, brother, aren't you happy that people who hate God and his people aren't in heaven? Let me repeat. Aren't you happy that people who hate God and his people aren't in heaven? He stopped and pondered for a little bit too long. And he responded eventually, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't know what to do with that personally when I was there. Uh, He was finishing up the the back of my neck and I was thinking, no, man, we got to wrap this up. Um... I remember how I responded exactly, but I'll let that be for after the sermon. 
So, brothers, all this to say, this illustration aside, I, I understand what this gentleman was trying to affirm, that we are all saved by grace and that Christians are not the only morally upright people. I appreciated what he was saying. And I honestly believe that this is where he was coming from. But his view of sinners is radically different from the scriptures. His view of sinners is radically different from the scriptures. Brothers, the only difference between Christians and non-Christians is the grace of God. If it were not for God's mere pleasure to redeem me in Christ, I would be dead in my sins and trespasses, and God, my God, your God, would be perfectly just to condemn me as a sinner eternally and forever. And the same is true for you, let alone for the grace of God. God is absolutely just to condemn sinners. But just as he is just to punish sinners, he is also just to punish sinners for enmity against his redeemed people. And this is where I want to lead back into this idea of that we're redeemed. God's grace, God's justice is rewarding because it rewards the faithful by ridding them of sinners. There are countless examples of this reality in the Bible. We could just look at the imprecatory psalms where David calls upon God to deliver him from antagonistic sinners. Psalms 43 verse 1 states, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. David's immediate response to the gross sin that was before him was not, Oh Lord, bless his heart. No, he prayed that God would deliver him from the presence of sinners. Even worse, or, or more powerful, I should say. In Psalm 74, verses 10 to 11, David prays to God, How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from your fold, take it from the fold of your garment, and destroy them. He's saying this of sinners just like him. He's saying this about sinners. Destroy them, O God. Deliver me, O God. Brothers, what we need to see from such evidence that we see in scriptures, in the scriptures is this. There's no such thing as a neutral sinner. There's no such thing as a sinner who is not an enemy of God. Sinners by our very natures are enemies of God. That is what we are, let alone for the grace of God, as we see in Romans 5. But if by God's grace we are changed from enemies, we are no longer enemies but sons of God, then we have been given a new desire to see God's glory magnified. And though we are to recognize that we once too walked in darkness and should be careful not to be boastful or hypocritical, yes, we nevertheless affirm that God will reward his faithful people and their obedience by removing sin and the sinner from their midst. Brothers, this is the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. At, at the fulfillment of the new creation, God's routine people will be free from the corruption, not only personally and corporately, They'll be free from that corruption, stain, and offense of the sin that they once used to participate in. But not only that, not only personally, but uh, not only inward, inwardly, but outwardly. The sinners out there, not only in here. 
in the latter and later chapters of the book of Revelation, the enemies of God, we see the great Babylon, Satan, and even believers and sinners will be judged. And the response of the people to this judgment is delight. This is considered good news. Brothers, we'll spend some more time on this next week. But it is sufficient for now to say that God's justice against sinners is a reward for the righteous. It is a gift to us that God does and will fully and finally destroy all those who stand opposed to him. Just as those who are in Israel who are moaning, groaning. Those moaning, groaning is a deep, desirous affliction in their own souls saying, why is this taking place? We see the bloodshed. We see the blasphemy in our midst. And they had a holy indignation before God. They saw the offense that was taking place before their God. They had zeal for God first and foremost. And they saw who was an offense before their God. And it was sinners. Yes, just like them. But sinners who were not changed by the grace of God. Brothers, it is a gift to us that God does and will finally destroy all those who stand opposed to him. Because if we love God's glory, we despise those who stand in opposition to it. Brothers, we are sinners saved by grace. But Christians are no longer enemies of God. That is something that we must take away. We are not enemies of God. We are not enemies of God if you are truly and vitally united to his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ can, no long, can, no, can, can never be an enemy of God. He is the son of God eternally. He cannot in his very being and who he is ever be at enmity with his God. Brothers, if you want to love the sin, sinner, tell them what they are. If you want to love the enemy of God, tell them what they are. Not in a haughty or arrogant way, but truthfully and accurately, so that they are presented with a sober reality that they stand before God condemned. This is true love, brothers, to speak truth in clarity. Brothers, so often we muddle the truth with, false, with a false intention of pity. But that condemns sinners to hell. Brothers, speak the truth in love. Present the loveliness of Christ as he is the one who is, a, he is both the just and justifier of the ungodly, of those who place their faith in him. So then, brothers, moving on to our third point for the evening. This final point underscores the just wrath of God against sin, and it's God's justice is retributive, verses 5 to 11. In verses 5 to 7... King Yahweh continues his sentencing. And he's talking to the angels, the executioners rather. And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women. But touch no one on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. So then Yahweh commands his executioners to pass through the city and strike down the entirety of the idolaters in the city and the land, starting with the sanctuary, making sure that the faithful are spared from this judgment. 
Notice that all the categories of people are in view. The elderly, both men and women, and even little children. And notice that Yahweh commands his executioners to start in the sanctuary and defile the worship of his house of worship. The purpose of this passage is to show the result of worshiping dead idols. You become what you worship. You become dead. Now Ezekiel is taken aback by the sight before him. He responds to this vision in which he sees people being slaughtered in this way. And he says, and while they were striking, I was left alone. And I fell upon my face and I cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel and the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Apparently, Ezekiel was concerned about the already small group that was left in Jerusalem. By remnant, he was referring to the small population left in Jerusalem after the, the various exiles. And not necessarily the faithful in Israel. But Ezekiel's response almost sounds like he is a southerner, does it not? Right? His misguided pity blinds him from seeing the true reality of the sin that he witnessed in the Torah of the temple. So God responds to Ezekiel's objection to his verdict. Yahweh responds to this objection. Then he said to me, Yahweh said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city is full of injustice. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. They will pay for what they have done. God's response to Ezekiel is ultimately one of a matter of justice. Israel has committed injustice and has broken covenant. Yahweh is simply fulfilling his obligation to his covenant and to his character. Yahweh is repaying back or retributing what Israel had wrought for herself. To put it in Pauline language, Israel reaped, she reaped what she sowed. Therefore, God's justice is retributive, brothers. He is simply repaying what Israel earned for their disobedience and sin. And according to the covenant, the punishment for sin of idolatry is death. And so death comes as the only appropriate response to the sin. God and his justice demands it. Brothers, as we come to the end of this passage, I want us to reflect on this matter of God's justice in the doctrine of Christ. God's justice, theologically, ontologically speaking, anthropomorphically speaking, demands the death of sinners. God, as the fount of all life and justice, when one disdains God's righteousness through sin, they must logically reject the life that he provides. Simply put, you cannot have God's blessing of life if you reject God's standard of justice, goodness, and morality. They are all the same. Brothers, this is the problem that started for us in the garden. Adam rejected God's rule over his life and he rebelled. And consequently, the blessing of eternal life was forfeited. However, inherent to the Christian gospel, brothers... Inherent to the Christian gospel is the justification of sinners by faith alone in Christ alone. Ah, this is a good part of the sermon. In order to have eternal life and communion with our God, our God had to fix our righteousness problem. Because our rebellion against God, we deserve the same judgment that we read in verse 9. I can easily insert any of your names in this room. 
into that text, and it would be absolutely 100% accurate. I'll use me, for example. The guilt of Hal Pritchard is exceedingly great. His soul is full of blood, and his mind is full of injustice. I can do that with every one of you, and that is 100% true. But brothers, the good news is that despite that reality, the good news is that God does not leave us in a status of condemned sinner. By God sending forth his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, Christ condemned sin in the flesh. And what was the purpose of Christ's incarnation and crucifixion? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So then, brothers, what we are to see from this 8, 4, Romans 8-4 passage, by Christ taking upon my punishment and your punishment, God's retributive justice was satisfied. Christ took our punishment, brothers and sisters, for sin, which is death. Brothers, as fallen sinners, we stand before God already condemned, and there is no way for us to make up for that infinite offense of sin that even the smallest of sins provokes in our infinitely holy God. As Paul says in Romans 3, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. We cannot be saved by our performance, brothers and sisters. We cannot be saved by how much we give. We cannot be saved for how much we do. We cannot be saved even for how faithful we are. It is not about our performance, brothers. We need a substitute who can perform, who can do the work of the law. We need a substitute who can satisfy the justice that God demands for our sin. And in the person of Jesus Christ, we have our perfect substitute and Savior. Brothers, in light of the great sin that we have seen week in and week out in our study of Ezekiel, remember that we are those who have known, we are those who know and believe and cherish the gospel. And so then with that, remember these words from the apostle. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. It's a gift. It's not justice. But it's grace. As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. He's the one who removes the wrath of God from upon us to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in the divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And this it was show it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Brothers, we talked a lot about justice today, but we must end on grace. We must end on the wonderful message of the good news of Jesus Christ, the most precious and enormous gift of God, God himself. Brothers, our God is both inherently and perfectly just, and he is also the one who makes just the inherently unjust. The core of the Christian message is that Jesus Christ is the righteous substitute who atones for the sins of his unrighteous people. 
and we simply receive that blessing of imputed alien righteousness, that imputed alien justice, simply by trusting that God is able to provide for us in the person and work of Christ. That's it. Trust. Trust. More importantly, brothers, we see here that these words speak to the core message of the Christian faith. Our God makes, the, makes righteous the unrighteous by the death of the righteous one. So then, brothers, with this, we think upon as we go our, our separate ways tonight. And in thinking about God's justice that is to come and the terrifying display that it is, let us never forget that we are those who know the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We have seen the grace and gift of our God. Rather than trying to strive after it, trying to strive in it in our own unrighteousness, trying to make up for justice where we have lacked all of our lives, he simply provides, here is justice for you. Receive it by faith. Brothers, that is what our God has done. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us pray.